Welcome to the Sword and Staff. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Robinson, and joining me today, as always, is my co-host, Richie Brock. And in today's episode, Richie and I are going to be concluding our series on reenchantment. And so we hope that you guys have enjoyed this series so far. We've really enjoyed doing it. Um, but so far, we've we've if you've not tuned in, we've really kind of laid a foundation from a Christian perspective of understanding uh, really the world um, from a re-enchanted perspective, right? We've really been calling this series between the both of us, how Christianity re-enchants everything, right? right. And so far, we've laid a found- foundation for how Christianity re-enchants our view of heaven and the spiritual beings there. So like in the first episode, we talked about how Christianity presents a enchanted view um, of God and the spiritual beings there and how they are engaging there in heaven, right? And so we also talked about last week how Christianity re-enchants the way that we view creation. So we talked about the cosmology of the world. We talked about how that cosmology gets used for categories of understanding symbolism, right? We talked about how, like, bird symbolism gets attached to spiritual beings and how sun, moon, and stars get attached to spiritual beings as well. We talked about how creation uh, categories get used for symbolism for for people and that type of thing. We talked about how water symbolism or how water uh, in that cosmology gets used for uh, symbolism for like the underworld and for chaos and for evil and all that kind of stuff. Um, And so today we're going to wrap up our series by talking about how Christianity re-enchants our view of the church and we think that this episode is really necessary you, you, like a lot of people may be like wondering why do we need an episode on how christianity re-enchants our view of the church right, right. We're, we're christians right yep. but i think for a lot of people it's necessary because i think that a lot of us as moderns tend to view the church and the nature of the church and the things that go on there in the church in a very secular way actually um and I think that a lot of us kind of view church as not much more than, you know, an event or that we go to on Sundays or a building that we walk into on Sundays or if you're a pastor like me, a few times a week. And, yeah. and that's actually a very secular view of what the church is and what's going on in the church. And so. We want to bring that out a little bit fuller in today's episode. So that should lead us right in um, into our topic today. But before we dive into the topic, I want to say this. If you want to get the full uncut version of what Richie and I are going to be talking about here today, head on over to our Patreon community and become a patron for just $5 a month. If you head over to www.patreon.com backslash sword and staff order, you can get the sword and staff uncut for just $5 a month. Just $5 a month, you get 30 extra mi- up to, or at least. I was going to say uh, at least. Uh, at least. 30 extra minutes of bonus content that we don't release on uh, our normal podcasting platforms. On occasion, we might release it um, if we think that it's something that everybody needs to hear or if if we're an episode behind or something like that. But very rarely do we ever release them um, to everybody. So to get those, you have to become a member of our Patreon community. And uh, we also drop our episodes faster there. They drop there first, right? They actually get first dibs on all episodes, so they get to hear them before anybody else does. So we also have various tiers uh, for our Patreon uh, subscribers as well. Uh, The different tiers that you subscribe to, the more stuff that you get. Right. And uh, so head on over to our Patreon, check out those tiers, at least come and become a part of the Sword and Staff um, get the sword and staff uncut for just five dollars a month. So uh, that leads us into our topic, which is the reenchantment of the church. And so we really need to start off with the question: What is the church? <laughs> right? Like, right. what is the church? And like I said at the beginning of this, in our introductory part, I think that most people uh, tend to just think that church is an event, or that it's just a building, or something like that. But The interesting thing is whenever we actually look to the scriptures, which is what we look to for guidance as Christians, we actually learn that the church is much more than this. And uh, one of the places that we see that is actually in 1 Corinthians 12.27. In 1 Corinthians 12.27, we actually learn that we are the mystical body 
of Christ. So Paul says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So basically what he is saying is that like we are more than just a gathering of people. It's, it's more than just a building. We are actually Christ embodied on earth. Right. I mean, that's what it means to be the body of Christ. I mean, the language that the scriptures use is he is the head, we are the body, right? Where the body is, the head is there as well, right? I mean, right. just think about it. You're sitting there, your body is there, but what else is there with you? Your head, right? And so it's the same with the church. We are the body of Christ. And so where we are, Christ is there present with us. This is how this head and body relationship works. So, But that's what the scriptures say that we are. We are Christ embodied on the earth. So if you want to know where Christ is on the earth, you should look to the church, right? right. Like I, I know that that's a, a challenge to a lot of uh, you know modernist views because you hear people out there all the time say things like, I like your Christ, but I don't like the Christians, yeah. right? Yep. And like to say that is to say you actually hate Christ because there is this inseparable relationship between Christ and the church in the same way that the relationship between head and body is inseparable. So you can't just say, I hate Christians, but I love Christ. That's, that doesn't jive, right? right? That's not how this thing works. And so, but that's not all that the church is. We also see scripture, uh, language in scripture of the church being a holy temple, right? Paul tells the Corinthians that you, your bodies are now temples, uh, a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? This is, that's reminiscent of the temple language that we see in the Old Testament, right? You had this Old Testament, and, or you had this Old Covenant, and under the Old Covenant you had this temple, and you had this temple that had the same cosmology as the world, right? You had heavens above, earth below, waters beneath the earth. The temple had that same type of cosmology. It was outer court, holy place, most holy place, right? So it's like this holy mountain. Um, and so... Uh, it actually shared holy mountain symbolism as well with, with Genesis. So like if you would have been a priest and if you would have went into the temple, there was tons of garden symbolism there. And like the menorah is like this tree that's standing in the midst of it and you know, all of that. So it's the temple is basically structured like Eden, like a holy mountain. Um, so anyway though, but the church is a temple and we see this type of language used in scripture. Um, and we actually learn, and this is where we're going to spe- spend the majority of our time today um, in Hebrews twelve twenty two, that the church is also a holy mountain. Explicitly, it says that. So in twelve twenty two, it says this, um, and it's talking to the church. And it says, um, let me find it here. Um, but you talking to the church, and he's talking about whenever we we come into this church, into this kingdom. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion. Right to the city of the the living God, right. So he's saying that the church is this holy mountain, like Mount Zion. Do you know what sat on Mount Zion? The temple. Yep. Right. So we are like this holy mountain in Scripture. You know that holy mountains is where God meets man. Right. This is high places. Right. I mean, you even see this in 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 the occult world. Yep. Right. And in pagan worldviews where the gods come down and meet on high places, yep. right? And like Symbolism is the same. Yeah, that's right. You know, you even, like, you even see this, like, in, well, you know, various places. Like, even with, like, the you know, mound stuff, like, burial mound stuff. Like, you're, you bury, uh, like, we've got Indian mounds around here, right? Right. And there are these raised, elevated places, and they bury their descendants there. Why? Because it's closer to the heavens. It's closer to the gods, right? Well, it's the same symbolism, right? God meets men in high places. Right. I mean, he meets Adam on Mount the Mountain of Eden, right? He meets Noah where? Where is it that Noah builds an, a, uh, an altar in Genesis chapter 9? Mount Ararat, right? He meets Moses where? And gives him the law. Mount Sinai. Right. He meets the prophet Elijah on a mountain. Right. He meets, uh, well, Jesus gives his sermon where? That's what I was going to say. Sermon yeah. on the mount. Right. Um, what's the last thing that, where's the last place that Jesus um, gives words at? Um, the mountain to which Jesus directed them. Right. Yeah. And in yeah. Matthew 28, he gives the great commission. His last words that he gives is on a mountain. Why? Because God meets men 
on mountains, in high places. And the church, it says, is like this high place, right? So we have become this holy mountain. We have become like Mount Zion. We have become the city of the living God, the writer of Hebrews says. And I've talked about that. I think that that's Paul who's saying that. Yeah. But, um, but that's what we are. The, the church is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's this place where heaven and earth overlap. Now, we also learn in Galatians, uh, Galatians 4, 26, that, um, that it is this, the church is also our mother, right? And so Paul talks about there explicitly, if I can get turned to it, in Galatians 4, Galatians 4, 26. He says, so he's talking about uh, Sarah and Hagar and how they serve as allegories of two different types of covenants and two different types of people. But in 26, uh, he says, um, the Jerusalem above. So he's talking about Sarah here and not Hagar. So Hagar, he says, corresponds to Mount Sinai in Arabia. Um, And she corresponds to the present Jerusalem who's in slavery with her children. But in regards to Sarah, he says that she corresponds to the Jerusalem which is above, which is free. And he says, she is our mother. So that's the same language that the writer of Hebrews uses in 1222 where it talks about we're this heavenly Mount Zion, the city of the living God. So also this thing that we're a part of, the church, is our mother. Now how does that work? Well, that's the bride part here, right? Like we use the 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 scriptures use the language of Christ being the bridegroom, uh, the church being the bride, right? But the bride is also our mother, Right, and she baptizes us into her her baptismal waters, right? Um, kind of like a womb in some ways, exactly. Um, yep. And she nourishes us with with the supper, right? With the the Lord's table. So the church, that's what she does. She nourishes us. She takes care of us the same way that a mother would take care of us. And so, for a lot of people. This is a whole new way of viewing church, right? Because whenever you come to church, you're ascending the holy mountain like we've talked about, right? Right. Like you're ascending the holy mountain. You're entering into the presence of the living God, even though you may not be able to visibly see him there in your presence, right? I'm sure that there you there's certain that corresponds to things that you saw in the world of the occult, right? right. Like I mean, we've yeah. talked about that before in the witchcraft episode that we did. That like whenever you drew out these sacred spaces, right? Like you drew this symbolism, um, you've got this circle and you're doing this ritual in the circle. Right. Like, Everything down to the, like the tools that you use are designated and elevated. Hmm. That's right. And so. Well, it's the same. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in the church architecture and that kind of stuff. But yep. it's stuff that's set apart for exactly. sacred sacred use. You know what I mean? For the use of corresponding with heaven. Um, but this is a whole different way of viewing the church. Most people don't view the church this way. Uh, most people just view it as this event that we go to, and it's not. It's literally entering into the city of the living God, and right. that's something that that really adds weight to what we're doing here, right? And so so the next thing that we're going to discuss is the liturgy that happens in the church, right? Um, so the liturgy, and if you don't know what a liturgy is, um, basically the liturgy is the order of service, right? It's the, basically it's a ritual. That's, that's exactly, <laughs> yeah, yep. which we've talked about. We've talked about that before. I don't want to call it that, but yeah, that's well, exactly what it is. Well, we've talked about this before in, in our witchcraft uh, episode, right? Right. Most people don't like the word ritual because ritual feels like occultish. Right. Right. But uh, the occult is basically a ripoff of the liturgy, right? Exactly. Like the, the spiritual beings that we learn about, like in Enoch, we've talked about this, um, who bring forbidden information to people. They're bringing distorted, twisted, inverted information, right? Right. Uh, it's, there's truth to it, but it's this inverted and turned in on itself thing, right? And so that's what ritual is, like this occult occult stuff. Like, you can actually get in contact with spiritual beings through rituals, but the way that they do it is is inverted and messed up. Exactly. And so, but anyway, um, the liturgy, though, it's basically the order of service. Every church has a liturgy, 
Like, even if you think you're not a liturgical church, you have a liturgy. Right. Um, everybody has an order of service. And so here's what I've referred to this event as. I've referred to it as a nexus event. Now, I don't think that anybody else has ever used that language. Uh, I think I've only used, I've only heard the term nexus, like strictly in the occult, in the new age. Well, like a I, spiritual convergence point. Yeah. So I'm not using it because of that. <laughs> I'm using it because, um, I saw it on the show Loki. We talked about it on yeah. the, the Loki episode that we did. Um, talks about this nexus event. And so what a nexus event is, is that by definition, uh, it is an event that links and connects two or more things together. That's what a nexus is, right? Um, and that's what the scriptures actually teach. It doesn't use the language of a nexus event, but I think that that, I think that that accurately represents what it is. So that's why I'm using that language. But the scriptures do teach that there are two and more things coming together in the liturgy that we do in the church on Sunday. And you know, like so in the occult, a spiritual nexus is a place that has, uh, that corresponds to equal distantly to the elements. Hmm. Well, so that's, you have, uh, that's what determines sacred space and a lot of natural yeah. ritual areas like that. That's really interesting. So in, in the liturgy, here's what's coming together here. You have heaven and earth coming together, right? You, you enter into the church, you're coming upon this holy mountain, right? The, the heavenly, Mount Zion, you know, that kind of thing. And what we learn is being connected here is heaven and earth. So listen to what I think, Paul. Uh, listen to what the writers of Hebrews... We're just going to have to go for it. I'm, just, I, I'm so just in the habit of saying, listen to what Paul says yeah. whenever I'm in Hebrews. So if you hear me... Just run with it. Yeah, just run with it. But uh, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in 22, which we've already read it, but we're going to read it again. And we're going to look at, uh, look at it with some emphasis here at the end of the verse. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and here's what I want you to get, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Okay? So whenever the liturgy is happening and whenever you come into the church, you are coming into the heavenly Mount Zion, and you're coming into the presence of innumerable angels who are in festal gathering. Now, some translations say festival gathering, um, you know, that kind of thing, or in celebration, you know, right. that kind of thing. But festal gathering means that they're preparing for a festival of yep. some kind, a meal, right? Well, what meal are they preparing for? Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit more uh, whenever we hit our sacraments section. But obviously, it's the Lord's Supper, right? Right, And we're going to talk about this more in our uncut section, too. But they're preparing for the Feast of Christ, right? The, the Lord's Supper, which typifies and points towards the uh, the feast of the bridegroom uh, that we'll be partaking in at the last day. But that's not all that we come into the presence of. Like if we read on here in 23, it says, so we come into the presence of innumerable angels and festal gathering. And it says, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now um, there's a, I think that that's talking about the saints, those who have been, who have you know been deceased and who have uh, went to heaven to be with God, yeah. right? Those who ha are who are the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Um, if that's not the saints, then uh, the last one that it's going to mention here specifically is. But it says, "And you come to God, the Judge of all." So we come into the presence of God whenever we come upon this mountain, and it says, "To the spirits of the righteous made perfect." So if, that's, if the first one's not the same, yeah. that one is, yeah. right? Because that's what happens whenever we go to heaven, right? We have these spirits that have been made righteous, and then they'll be perfected, right, whenever we come into the presence of God. So literally, we have this nexus event happening, right, where heaven and earth is being joined together, and we're coming into the presence of God. Well, we'll go ahead and read on down here. That's not the only presence we come into. It also says in 24, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, right? So we're coming into the presence of the triune God, but we're also coming into the presence of the saints. We're also coming into the presence of the angels. So this truly is a nexus event, right? It's bringing together multiple things here in this one event. And that's what the liturgy is doing. And I know that most people don't think right. about the yeah. liturgy in that way, right? Exactly. Right, most people think about it as like a rock concert. Yep. And you really see that in in our evangelical culture today, 
where you see that type of just atmosphere, you know, in, in the liturgy and it's treated like this concert and it's, uh, it's really aimed at the unbeliever. Yeah. Like the, their preferences and what they would like and what would speak to them. And that's not at all the Bible's. Yeah, the sacredness of it is just ripped away from it. That's right. Yeah. And so, so that's what's going on in the liturgy. And so not only is that going on, but also we're offering up sacrifices in the liturgy. Yep. And that's probably going to make people uncomfortable to hear that. Yep. But that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 12.1. So in Romans 12.1, he tells the Roman church to offer their bodies up in worship as living sacrifices. So let me, let me pull it up. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and spiritual or holy and acceptable to God, which is, get this, your spiritual worship. So what is our worship? Living sacrifices, right. which corresponds back to what? The temple where what was offered up? Sacrifices, right? Right. So again, we are coming into this holy temple there are sacrifices being altered, uh, lifted up. Now, obviously, there is a contrast between living sacrifices and the types of sacrifices that were lifted up in the temple, right? Those were sacrifices that would die. The sacrifices that we offer up aren't dying sacrifices. They are living sacrifices, right? So that's talking about things like whenever we, like if you've ever been to a church before and you, you kneel when you pray, right? That is offering your body up as a sacrifice that posture is signifying reverence right right um it's also what we do with our our voices when we sing right whenever we sing we're offering up sacrifices to the living god uh whenever we we take our bodies and we or you raise your hand right that's offering up a living sacrifice whenever we use our bodies to eat of the lord's supper Right, that's it's the same thing, right? So we are offering up sacrifices in our worship, and I don't think most people think that way. Yeah, right. I mean, it really, uh, it really reenchants the way that you view worship. I think so. And so this also touches on the topic of the sacraments. So because this is an nexus event where heaven and earth is being joined together, the sacraments are more than just flesh and water and bread and wine. Now, most people think that whenever you come into the gathering and we're partaking of the sacraments, all that the sacraments are is that's flesh going down into the water and coming back up, right? Yeah. Or that's just uh, bread and wine that you're eating. Or in drinking, right? Or for some of us, bread and juice. Yeah, bread and grape juice. (laughs) Bread and grape juice, right? (laughs) Um, But for most part, that's what most Christians think. If they're even doing the sacraments. Most of them aren't even doing the sacraments, right? But because this is a nexus event and we are in the presence of heaven, we learn that there is more at work here than just water, bread, and wine. So Paul in Romans 6, talks about this explicitly with baptism. So in Romans 6, 4, Paul says that our baptisms are more than just going into the water. Listen to what he says. In verse 4, he says, We were buried, therefore, with him, that is Jesus Christ, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he's saying that whenever we are baptized, we are united to Christ in some mysterious way, right? And that's what's being signified here, right? Like water is what? What does it represent? What's its symbolism? We talked about it in the last episode, right? Death, right? The realm of the dead, right? And so what happens is we are going down into what? The realm of the dead, And we're coming back up out of it. Like we're being raised up from the dead, just like Jesus was raised up from the dead. Right? And that's the symbolism of baptism. It's death 
and then it's resurrection, right? Right. And so that's what's going on here in in our baptism. So it's more than just going down into the water. Paul says that it's explicitly being united to Jesus and being raised from the dead by the glory of the Father to walk in newness of life just like he was. And it's the same thing also with the Lord's Supper, right? So with the Lord's Supper, uh, well, before we talk about the Lord's Supper, Paul talks about this again in Colossians. So in Colossians 2.21, let me, I should have brought, brought it up on my, my phone or uh, uh, my digital yeah. Bible. We're, here we are again with me pa- flipping pages today. Hey, whatever works. As it works. But in Colossians 2.21, Paul says basically the same thing there about baptism again. So in Colossians 2.21, if I can get turned there, there we go. Uh, in 2.21, he says, oh, wait, is it 2.21? I don't think it's 2. It says 2.21. Um, let me see here. It's definitely not two twenty one. <laughs> well, anyway, we'll move on. It's in Colossians. I'll have to go back yeah, and find it. It's in Colossians well, somewhere. Yeah, but there's another passage here where he talks about baptism being a death and resurrection. I'll have to go back and find it before the end of the episode. But but that takes us to communion then, right? So communion is more than just um, partaking of bread and wine. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, Paul talks about explicitly what happens at the Lord's Supper. And so here he's he's mainly talking about the negative part of it, like what happens when someone who is not worthily partaking happens. He tells them in verse 30, I think it was 30, yeah, 30. He says, this is why many of you are weak and ill and why some have died. Right, So what was going on there was there were people who were dividing the body. Right, They were dividing into rich and the poor, and the rich were coming together, and they were eating the meal together, and they were getting drunk yep. off of the wine, Right, and they weren't leaving any for the poor. And so Paul talks about that you, we have to discern the body, right? that we have to be able to discern who is a part. Like the, the poor are, are just as much a part of the body as the rich are. right? So we have to come together as one, and partake of this worthily. And so we come together, and um, he talks about that those who come to this meal and they're not eating in a worthy manner, he says, some of you have fallen asleep and become ill, and some have died, right? So does bread and wine do that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's not very often that somebody eats bread and drinks wine and they fall asleep or they get ill or they die. Yeah. And the sleep, obviously, is a synonym for death, right? That's not just they're getting drunk and passing out, right? But I don't know of many people who just, you know, eat bread and drink wine and and die. Right. So, obviously, there's a spiritual dynamic to what's happening here, right? Like, people are eating of this, and because it's more than just bread and wine, there is something happening here spiritually. People are dying. Now, what's going on here? Well... We've talked about the sacraments being a means of grace for those who partake in an unworthy manner. They're not a means of grace. They're a means of judgment. They're a means of wrath, right? And that's what's going on here with the Lord's Supper. And so for those who do partake in a worthy way, you do receive the the grace and the things there that's promised, right? Right. Um, and so, yeah. So that's what's going on here with the Lord's Supper. And I think, and the church has historically said this, that there are the involvement of angels and angelic beings in the sacraments as well, which Absolutely. also which also yeah. helps them, uh, which makes helps make them uh, effectual. Um, and so, f- specifically, uh, we've talked about this in the angelic hierarchies, right? We talked about this in the past two episodes. It's going to get talked about here again today, right? It, it falls under the category of the virtues, right. right? Who are basically the good version of the elemental spirits, and they're tasked with miracles, right? Doing miracles, um, and in some ways, the sacraments are miracles. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about that more in today's uncut version. But um, because I know people are going to be like, okay, what do you mean by the sacraments are are miracles, right? Well, basically, what we mean by that is any time that the supernatural interferes with the natural, that's a miracle. We'll talk about that a little bit more from C.S. Lewis. But but anyway, um, so that's what's going on here. The reason these things are being made effectual uh, 
by God, by the triune God, um, by delegating off uh, this task to his angelic hierarchy, right? And so that's what's going on here. And we actually, <laughs> it's interesting um, because we actually see uh, in Scripture we're in Psalm 78, verses 23 through 25, manna was referred to as the bread of angels, Yep. right? So, like, there's a text that's explicitly connecting bread from heaven uh, to, an- to angelic beings. And we learn that in, you know, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, that, um, you know, it, he talks about there that, that Israel basically had the same food and spiritual food and drink that we have. Like he talks about that they were all baptized in the Moses as they went through the Red Sea. So even though they didn't have baptism, like we have baptism, he says they were baptized in the Red Sea. And then he says that they had the same spiritual food. And the way that that works is, well, in you know in Exodus, God provides what from heaven? Manna. Psalmist says that that's the bread of angels. Yep. But he says that that corresponds to the Lord's Supper, right? Like, that's the same spiritual food, he says. Jesus says what? I am the bread come down from heaven. What is it that we're partaking of in the Lord's Supper? The body and blood of Jesus, yep. right? So it's the manna from heaven. Um, so it's the bread of angels. But it's the same, too, uh, like the the water. He talks about the spiritual drink that they had was the water from the rock that Moses struck in, in the Exodus as well. And he says that that rock was Christ. So... That's what's going on here with with these sacraments, and that's how the angels are involved with this as well. So it's not just my thoughts. Like, right? Yeah. Like, we're going to talk about where this is at a little bit more in church history in the uncut episode. So if you're interested in that, stay tuned and make sure to tune into that um, after today's episode. But um, but yeah, we'll talk about how we're not the only people who's ever said that. But um, but so that's what's going on with the sacraments. That's the metaphysics of the sacraments, right? Like they're is more than just the physical part of it. There is something spiritual happening there as well. So I don't, I don't know if you like, there was anything like that in the world that you came from before coming into the church. But, but, uh, anyway, that's, uh, yeah. Well, so now we'll talk about how the, the church re-enchants our view of time and space. Right, so in the church, uh, well, basically the reasons that we've talked about here today, um, because um, there, because the church is a holy mountain, uh, because it's the city of the living God, because we come into the presence of angel, uh, angels and festal gathering and to the triune God and, and all of those things, because of that reason, um, entering into the church is entrance into sacred time and space, right? So we're enter- literally entering into a different world in some ways, right? Heaven and earth, right? We're entering into different time and space. And so this is why the church emphasized this in the liturgical calendar of the year, like with all the church seasons, right? Yeah. With like Advent, Christmas, Lent, Easter, you know, Epiphany, Pentecost, Ordinary Time, all the different feast days, you know, that kind of thing. Um and it's also also why um, churches were built the way that they were built, right? Like why they have these different places in them, like like naves and and uh, you know all of that kind of stuff. You've got this place where you come through the darkness, and then you you know you you enter into the light, and you know all that different stuff. And why there's this all this elaborate architecture because the church knew that it was entrance into sacred space, right? right. Because this is where the living God resides. This is where the angels in festal gathering resides, right? It's it's all of these things. And so if you've ever walked into a cathedral, it's absolutely breathtaking. That's why. Like that's what's being reflected there, right? And so it's it's designed to physically embody the spiritual reality that's behind it, which is that you're entering into sacred space. And I think in some ways it's really a shame um, that as moderns we've stopped building churches like this. Right. Don't you? I yep. mean, it's it's really it's really a shame. Yeah, I uh, heard somebody uh, just the other day mention that it's the angels and the architecture. That's it. Yeah, I actually have a book by Doug Wilson called Angels and the Architecture. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
fantastic book, by the way. But um, but that's what's going on. Like it, there's it's we're entering into to sacred space and we're entering into sacred time. And because of that, um, that should cause us to to view these things differently, right? Like and and yeah, so that's really uh really interesting. And so this brings us to our application section for today. This is kind of a shorter episode, but uh, it brings us to our application section for today, which is, okay, so with all this in mind, right, that the church is, you know, uh, this holy mountain, that it's the city of the living God, that it's this motherly Jerusalem above, and that this the liturgy is this nexus event, right, and that there are metaphysics behind the sacraments and we're entering into sacred time and space. Like, like, what do we, like, what do we do? Yeah. Right. Like, how do you, how do you even process that? Right. Well, I would say, um, in my, my, my take on things, the first thing that I would say is you should make sure that you're part of a local church, right? Like, because, um, it's, it's, you can't view the church this way. Like, it's hard to view the church this way and what's going on there if you're not, like, partaking in it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, there, I read this book um, not too long ago about knowing and how knowing and loving. It's uh, by Esther Meek. Um, I, don't I think Esther Meek Lightcap maybe was her name. I, I have to look real quick. i got to bring it up. I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> Esther Meek. Oh, I was confusing her last name and her her middle name. Her name is Esther Lightcap Meek. And it was called A Little Manual for Knowing. And then there's a larger one that's called Loving to Know, uh, Covenant Epistemology. But basically, um, what she talks about is that unless we commit ourselves to to loving something, like we can't actually know it. Like that that's actually how we come to, to know things in an intimate way. So for example, I'm I'm married, right? And so like it's one thing to know about my wife, but it's another thing to know my wife. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the only way that I can know her in that deep true sense is by loving. Right? Um, like some some person uh, I can't I think Peter Lightheart said that this was the the epistemology of Elfland, basically saying that this is how, like in Tolkien, this is how the elves do something like that. Yeah. They love nature, right? And you see them incorporating it into what they do. And because of that, they know deeply about it. Right. Um, but anyway, um, so I would say that it's, it's difficult to know this experientially and intellectually, if you're not loving it. You know what I mean? If you're not right. yeah. engaging in it in a deep way. Um, ritual trains us, right? Liturgy trains us. That's one of the things that liturgy does, and it's it's very important. Um, you know, there's been people out there who've talked about how, you know, I've, I'm looking at books on my shelf right now by James K.A. Smith, who talks about that, that habit, um, there's a liturgical element to habit, right? I mean, just think about your habits throughout the day. It's basically a liturgy. Yeah. Right? Like, you get up, you shower, like you get breakfast rolling, you go to work, uh, you do your thing there, you come home, you wind down, you shower, you eat again, you go to bed. Right. Very chiastic, right? But at the same time, it's very ritual, right? It's a a ritual that you're a part of. It's a liturgy is what it is. And that trains you. Like, it, it trains everything about you. It trains you on how you're going to engage your day. It, it even informs your identity and what you do. Right. Like, and so if we're, if we're not being formed by the liturgy of the church, we're going to be formed by alternative liturgies, counter liturgies, right? Things that are going to, uh, shape our loves in ways that we don't want them to be shaped. And that's what they do. And and what the liturgy is doing is it's shaping our love to love the right things, right? To adore Christ, to um, to know that this is the world that we live in, that God is enthroned above all, and that we have this world where the seen and unseen overlap, right? So 
very hard to do that if you're not engaging in that in some way, right? Right. Uh, you can know that intellectually. Yeah. But it comes back to that type of intellectual knowledge I'm talking about. Like, it's the same type of, like, I can know who, like, about my wife. But until I engage in the act of loving her, it's like dancing, you know? Yeah. Um, until we dance and until we come in and share this meal together and all of that. That's a balance between heart and head. It yep. is. It is. It's a balance between heart and head. That's absolutely right. And until we do that, um, we're not going to truly know this the way that we should. Right. And so that would be my first piece of a per, first piece of application is like you should be a part of a local church. Like that's that's important. It's uh, it's essential in having our loves form the right way. It's a, our, our countering the liturgies that we encounter out in the world that we're not even aware of that are liturgies. Um, so that's uh, that's really really essential. And so I don't know if you got anything you want to add to that, but no, I'm good. Okay. Well, the next piece that I would give is I would say observe sacred time. Oh, yeah. Observe sacred time. And so um, right now, well, this is something that, that my family and I started four, five years ago, I think. Um, well, probably be- actually, be- yeah, four or five years ago. So, okay, so we're sitting in the church that I planted right now, right? And the very, so I, I got plugged in and was thinking about the church calendar before I ever planted a church. And so we were, think, we were celebrating things like Advent, um, you know, that kind of stuff prior to planting a church. But um, whenever it really became a thing for us, though, like a big celebration for us, uh, whenever we planted our church, and our community started planting, uh, celebrating this together, right? So for a lot of our people, they had never heard of the liturgical calendar before the church calendar. Like they had never, like they, I, obviously everybody knows Christmas. Everybody knows Easter, right? But most people didn't know that they were a part of other seasons too. Like Lent leads up to Easter. Right. Or Advent leads up to Christmas. And that there's actually 12 days of Christmas yeah. after Christmas Day, yeah. right? That's where the song, the 12 days of Christmas, you know, come from. But um, most people weren't aware of that. And so whenever we started celebrating that, it became a thing. And it caught on in our local church. And then you would see people start buying like Advent wreaths and like posting pictures of their Advent wreaths online. And, you know, it's the, or, or starting to do Lent, like and they're fasting for, you know, off and on for 40 days from things. And so I would say that that's an essential way, too, of um, just shaping the way that you view the world. I mean, right now it's turning fall. Yep. Right? We just had the equinox. Just had the equinox. And that's shaping the way that we think about the world right. we live in right now. Right? You've talked about the symbolism of – could you talk about that? I mean, just to listeners, like how kind of there's this symbolism attached to the seasons. Oh, and, and the occult world, everything – has has deep symbolism to it. I mean, your daily, your life, the rhythms of your life is dictated by sun, moon, and stars, yeah. seasons, things like that. Yeah. All of our festivals. And strangely enough, even even in, like, with the Jews, even their festivals are very similar to their based on the lunar calendar, like in, like in the occult. Yeah. Yeah. And you was talking about how, you know, spring is kind of like this newness, right? This right. birth. You see that, right? You've got the birth of new things, right? Flowers. Yeah, and the newness like of life. Yeah, and then summer's kind of like those gold, uh, not golden years. Those are like uh, the prime of your life. The prime of your life, yeah. right? Um, the fullness of life. Fruitfulness, right? right? Like you're starting to, things are growing and they're they're getting into the, the what they're supposed to be. And then after that, there's the harvest, right? right. And that's where we're at right now. Um, we're in the fall, and the leaves are starting it's to a fall. Huge time of reflection. It's, a, it's like the year. The it's like the golden years of life, right? Right. Where you've come through the prime, and now you're on the back end of things, and you're starting to reflect, and you've kind of went from being a disciple to being a discipler, yeah. or a. Uh, uh, somebody who is mentored. Now you're becoming the mentor, right? It's kind of like the hero's journey, right? You've yep. you started off on this one, and now you've come back to take this thing back to other people. But yeah. that's what a time to harvest those seeds that you planted earlier on. That's right. And then winter obviously is reflective of death, right? right? Because everything dies, 
and you know, death with the promise of new life. That with the promise of new life, yeah. And there's Christ, like this isn't something that Christians haven't said either. Like this is right. just the the ancient worldview and how they viewed things, right? Like we talked about last week, how the sun, moon, and stars are for signs and for seasons and things right. like that. But but having this uh, liturgical calendar. You can see how it even, or you, you can see how these seasons fit the life of Christ in some right. ways. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, when is when is Easter? I mean, it's in the season of resurrection in the spring. Literally, new. Yeah. You know, it's good um, stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. so anyway, um, so I would say that observing sacred time is is essential, and it's I would say that it's actually spiritual warfare in some way because we live in a world right now that is vying for your attention and for you to celebrate secular holy days. If you don't know what the word holiday means, it means holy day, right? I mean, you can see the similarity there in etymology, but that's what a holiday is. It's a holy day. And I'm just thinking right now of the world that we're living in, especially here in America, where things are increasingly becoming more and more progressive um, and it's almost like there are progressive saints that are starting to get their own holy days. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And you know, and and icons. You know, I'm thinking. You know, I'm thinking about the. I hate to say this because it was a, a tragic thing, um, <coughs> but I'm thinking about the way that that somebody like a George Floyd has also be- exactly. pretty much become yep. like a martyr or a, a progressive saint in some ways. And I'm not saying that he himself was these things. I don't know anything about the man, um, but. But the way that you've seen that used and put into a narrative, right? It's like he's become this secular saint in some ways who sacrificed himself for, well, what we're now people are now fighting for is justice. Right. You know what I mean? It's uh, very messianic in some ways. And so what most people aren't even aware of this. Right, they're pre-programmed to find those types of uh, meaning and categories. That's, that's right. Uh, it's because we are created for meaning right. and for deep for for depth and for the things that we've talked about you know but um but yeah the it, the world is trying to train you it's a liter- it's a different liturgy it's an alternative liturgy yeah. it's an alternative uh way of viewing the world and so the world is vying for your attention and it wants you to celebrate um these secular saints and the church calendar is a way of fighting against that in some ways and it declares that I mean, just think of something like Labor Day, okay? Like, we just had Labor Day here recently. Yeah. And I, it's cool, in a way, because, like, everybody gets a day off. You know what yeah. I mean? But think about it. Like, you get one day off a year. What's that say about your identity? Like, the under the other 364 days of the year? The 365 days? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the other 364 yeah. days of the year, what are you? What's that say about your identity? Like you're a worker, you're an employee, yeah. and this one day a year you're not? Like if you're not thinking about this and how it's training you to view yourself and your identity, you're going to end up with a secularized worldview here. And and the church calendar and sacred time is is spiritual warfare and it's training you to see it in the opposite way. It's you're you're no longer telling like you're no longer telling the story in, in terms of I'm an employee. Now I've got this, like you're telling it in, in a framework where God is at the center of it. Right. And, and every week you get a Sabbath every week in his, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he tells the, he tells the Israelites <clears throat> whenever he brings them out that they're going to have a Sabbath because they're no longer slaves, you know? So, um, I think that that's uh, an important thing. I think that it, uh, it does that and it shapes you to view Christ as the main um, fulcrum for telling time, right? Because the seasons are based around his life. Like Advent and Christmas are, are um, around his birth, right? Right. Epiphany is around uh, his reveal, his, him being revealed, right? And, the you know, the whole wise men bringing him gifts and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then after that, you know, um, you know, Lent is like following him through the wilderness, right? Following his footsteps. We enter into our own wilderness for 40 days and fast. And then 
in Easter we celebrate, we experience, first we experience the pain of death in Good Friday. But then on in Holy Saturday we experience the silence of death, right? That that what it, what the disciples would have felt. But then on Easter Sunday we celebrate, right? Right. And so telling time in this way trains us to live in a certain way, to view time in a certain way. And if we don't have this, and this is what the church has historically seen, right? Like I know that there are reformed people out there who just hate the church calendar and they think that it's this this is this invention of the church yeah. and it's the binding but listen, who's the lord of time? Exactly. Who's the lord of time? Is is Christ the lord of time? Like listen, it to me it comes down to an issue of lordship. Who's the lord of time? Like who who tells time in my worldview? Like who gets to define holidays? Like if I if the Lord doesn't do it, then who else is going to do it? Well, somebody else is going to fill the void. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so I am not willing to abandon the lordship of time to anyone else other than Christ. And so that's why I celebrate the church calendar and why my family does. But I would say um, some of the practical, get back to some of the practical stuff here. Um, some of the ways that you can do that is just by like, well, we're gearing up for Advent here shortly. So... I would say just like head over to like Home Goods or uh, Michaels or Hobby Lobby or something like that, and pick up an Advent wreath and some Advent candles. Light one every Sunday of Advent. That's what we started off doing. Right. You know, now we've decorated our entire house in Advent decor and then Easter decor and all that. So that's a really practical way, I think, to to get involved and to start thinking this way. All right, so this takes us to our last point of application, which is, I think, an important one, and that is this. Um, for those of you who are listening who are artists, I think that it's imperative that we create art that emphasizes the things that we talked about here today. Right. Art trains us. You know what I mean? It trains the way that we see the world. I mean, who? I mean, we talk about Tolkien at length. Like Dude, every single, daily. like every single time we're behind these microphones. Why? Yep. Why do we, why do we do that? Because his art has trained the way that we view the world. Right. I mean, in our uncut section last week, we did a, com- a comparative analysis of, uh, you know, virtues and angelic beings and the Valar. Right. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, so we are in need of Christian art makers who are making sacred art like if we we need art to help us think in these types of categories and to to see the world in this way and if we don't have that we're just going to we're just going to see ground to the secularists right and they're going to train us with their art a lot their, of a lot of that that's really uh caught my attention is like your phone wallpaper yep yeah 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 yeah, yeah. that's from a uh, jonathan peugeot yep. yeah. i was just looking at that image this morning, actually. Yeah. Well, uh, it's it's really interesting there because he's got angels with cups yep. catching blood out of the, the, which is very similar to the Lord's Supper stuff we were talking about today. Yeah. But uh, anyway, um, but yeah, and um, there's there's 2,000 years of great Christian art out there. Um, you should be reading that and looking at that and taking that in and then also creating your own. You know, I think that one of the the worst things about where we're at today is Christian art just sucks. It does. Yep. It just it's. I just. I'm sorry. It just it sucks. And it's the reason bland and lifeless. Yeah. Well, and I think that the reason why it's bland and lifeless is we try to copy the world. Exactly. And the world is secular. It has no spiritual view of the world at all. And I think that's the reason why people are rediscovering people like Tolkien and like Lewis right now. Because the art that they created is has transcendence. You know, this is like there's a an escape out of this uh, secular sh- world that's that's sterile. And right, sh- you'd be hard pressed to find a single pebble in Middle Earth that didn't have a, a higher meaning meaning somewhere down the line. Yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah, and we need we need people who who pick up that baton and carry that on. Right. right, who who are going to carry on the the this type of work where we're creating sacred art that's going to train our minds. Listen, if you don't think that this is going to train your minds, 
and it doesn't train your mind. Just think about what's going to happen. What happens with a lot of kids who go to public schools? Right. Like, what do you think that is? That's catechesis, right? Like it's, uh, you know, it's, you're being trained. And one of the things that they're going to do early on is they're going to read them stories. Why? Because it shapes the imagination and it shapes, you know, it shapes your imagination, even as an adult. You know, one of the favorite quotes that I have is by C.S. Lewis when he says, one day you'll be old enough to read fairy tales again. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. So I think that it's essential. But so I would say, uh, you know, people who are going to write stories, like if you're a Christian, you write, write stories. Um, if you make music, make music. Like we have a guy in our church right now who's actually working on um, putting the Psalms to music. And he, he leads us in worship every Sunday. We sing Psalms in our worship every Sunday. But he's working on actually, you know, putting all of the Psalms to, to music. And I think that that's something that the church needs. Um, but if you're just a, an artist in general or an illustrator, right, I would say make art that depicts these realities that we've talked about today, right? Um, you know, I, I think that that's necessary. And, uh you know, whenever, you know, if you look at the church throughout history, like you can even make furniture that's going to be used in sacred worship. Oh, yeah. Like the pulpit that we have yeah. in our church right now, I've made that. Um, and it's a replica of Charles Spurgeon's pulpit. You know, um, you can actually make art that's going to become sacred art that's set apart. Um, I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be sacred art that's set apart, and it's going to be used in the worship of the living God. It's going to be uh, sanctified and set apart. So um, I don't think that a lot of people think about that, but our art making is important. And uh, we would encourage you to to take that up and to make good art. Right. I mean, even just the, the detail and symbolism you can put into creating something yourself rather than going down and get like an Ikea pulpit or something. Yeah. Or just, uh, dude, the thing that kills me the most, and the reason why it kills me the most is I did it when we first started. Um we had just this little tiny like Ikea, like round bar table. Yeah. And it, because it was super modern and sleek and look cool looking. And uh, yeah, like and I, a lot of people do that. And I'm just like, ah, it just it's, you know, it's no wonder that people come to, to, to churches and they're basically secularists. There is no deeper meaning to anything anymore. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's literally cold, sterile, modernistic and uh we should create things and put things out there that have depth to them and and symbolism symbolism to them and and those types of things to get people thinking and and diving deeper into the depths of these things uh seeing that there is something behind this material thing that we're looking at right um because there is and that's what we've been talking about now in these past three episodes that there's much more going on than meets the eye and um so, well, that brings us in at about an hour. Um, wow. It doesn't seem like that was an hour conversation. It doesn't. It feels like that it went by really, really fast. But uh, we're coming in at an hour. And so that should probably uh, bring us to an end of today's episode. Uh, so Richie and I are going to continue this conversation. And it's going to be available exclusively to our patrons over at Patreon. So if you'd like to hear the uncut version of today's episode, uh, which is going to continue when we sign up, uh, sign off today, head on over to our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash sword and staff order. So Richie and I, we're going to be back next week with a chinwag edition of the sword and staff. And then the following week, we're going to be returning with our October series that's going to be starting off with a survey of the underworld. So it's Sword and Staff Goes to Hell. <laughs> there we go. Sword and Staff Goes to Hell yeah. uh, in October. That's a little provocative. But, oh, yeah. But uh, maybe that's how we'll market it. Sword and Staff Goes to Hell. Um, but what we're going to do in that series is we're going to talk about the geography of the underworld and look at it in, in Christianity and even in comparative uh, mythology because there's a lot of overlap. Um, so we're going to be looking at the realm of the righteous in the underworld, um, which corresponded to Elysium and things like that in Greek mythology. And it's called Abraham's bosom in the Jewish, in, in, uh, you know, the Judeo Christian worldview. And then after that, we've got the realm of the, the unrighteous, which is Tartarus. 
Um, and that's called Tartarist across the board yep. <laughs> in Greek and uh, Jewish Jewish uh, worldviews. But uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit and talk about how most people don't typically understand how the underworld functions and, and kind of how there are kind of neighborhood, differing neighborhoods in the underworld for different types of people. Um, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, uh, if you guys are fans of Dante and Dante's Inferno, yep. it's a good time to start reading that as October approaches. Um, also, 100 Days of Dante is happening right now, and I've actually been reading through that. We're on like the fifth canto or something now. So anyway, really interesting. But um, So we're going to be doing that. And then we're also, uh, for the first, uh, what would typically be a chinwag edition in October, we're actually going to be releasing an interview with Ward Heine, who has produced Dark Holler. Right. Um, and so for those of you guys who don't know, I was actually in the Dark Holler film. Um, I'm actually the pastor who's in the film. Yep. Uh, for those of you who didn't know, we've not talked about it any, but uh, we're talking about it now. And so we thought it'd be a great time to bring Ward on uh, during Halloween or during the month of October to kind of get the spooky vibes. Yep. Uh, and so we're going to talk about Dark Holler some. Uh, <laughs> Um, we'll see what else is uh, what what else we, we goodness we can get into. Uh, who knows where that conversation is going to go? Yeah. I suspect it's going to be weird. Um, I mean, there was a season of our lives for a long time there that we were, yeah, like really deep diving into that yeah. whole case. Yeah, so. yeah, no doubt. And Richie has been a part of that too since the beginning, and uh, he actually um, was a consultant on that film as well. And so we've both been involved in Dark Holler, and we're going to be talking about it a little bit more. We've never talked about it, so uh, this will be uh, kind of a, a doorway to begin talking about it a little bit. Don't really, haven't really wanted to spoil too much about it. And it's but, opening uh, a huge can of worms. It's a big case. Yeah, it's a huge case. It's really still, in some ways, going on. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's our own personal hellier in some ways. Yep. Um, but anyway, so we'll be talking about Dark Holler, so we hope you guys are excited about that. I know some of you guys have, have been following Dark Holler for a while, and so uh, I, it's going to be a fun conversation, I think. Um, after that, we'll do the second episode on the Underworld, and then after that, we'll do an episode on... Richie and I are planning on getting out to Point Pleasant. Uh, we're going to go out, check out Point Pleasant, see what uh, what kind of stuff we can get into there, see if there's anything creepy hanging out around there. Uh, oh, I, I'll take you to it. We'll find it. Yeah, I guarantee you that. Um, <laughs> so we're going to go out to Point Pleasant, and so we'll talk about that on a Chinwag edition, talk about what we find out there. Probably also have some material that we'll release uh, from that trip too. We'll see. And then um, on October 31st, we're going to release two episodes on that day. So we're going to release Shadow Appalachia, which is the story that we've created. So for those of you who have been following and listening to the trailers, hey, we're creating art. Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're creating stories, yep. right? Uh, and we're creating them with a distinctively Christian worldview um, that has supernatural elements to it. Um, it's also influenced by Tolkien and then like people like H.P. Lovecraft, yep. you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, so anyways, uh, we're going to be releasing that on the 31st. And we're also going to be releasing a narrated episode where we talk about, um, well, it's going to be, is Halloween pagan? And is it a continuation of things like Samhain and, and that kind of thing? So should be an interesting... Uh, I actually just had people in our group ask about that the other day. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, I, I could send them the blog post that I wrote, yeah, but I just don't want to... That's why I didn't at first. Yeah, like, it's, uh, it's out there if you yeah. look for it. Um, but I don't want to spoil it. So we're going to release that as a narrated uh, episode. It'll be a mini sode that we'll release on uh, Halloween, but should be a good October. Should be a good harvest fall season, and so we hope that you guys are looking forward to it. We're looking forward to it. And so, Richie, if you don't have anything else, that should do it for us. I'm good. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we're going to continue this conversation on the uncut portion. So we'll see you guys next week. Mm-hmm.